Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning and welcome to Crosspoint. If you are visiting with us or you have uh, only been attending for a short period of time, let me introduce myself. Not Brad Evangelista. I am Tyler Kirkpatrick. I am one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to be before you today opening up the Word of the Lord. We will be in the book of Jonah, the entire thing, this morning. And if you are wondering whether we will go through it verse by verse, we will not. But if you are interested in that, because that is usually what we do from this pulpit, uh, Brad did preach through this book a couple of years ago. And there are going to be a lot of stones that we leave unturned this morning. And so if you want to turn over those stones, just find our podcast and make your way through that. I feel that you would be very blessed to do that. What we are going to do um, this morning as we look at the book of Jonah is gather some lessons, and in particular, three lessons from the book of Jonah about salvation. So with, without question, Every single person in the world has a view or an understanding of salvation. Now, that may not be biblical salvation. I think most people, when they think about salvation, they are, they are thinking about not going through some sort of judgment or facing some sort of harm. And in that regard, everybody has a view of what happens when you die, that everyone will be saved in some sort of manner. Now, I, I think that some of those possibilities are, are at least plausible. Some of them are straight nonsensical. Some of them involve flying spaghetti monsters. Some of them involve Star Wars. I don't know how that one works. But everybody has a view of what happens, how one might be saved. I think the question, though, for us as we come this morning as the gathered church is, so do other gatherings this very morning who claim the name church. We also have varied views. So, so how exactly do we find the right answer? Well, obviously the answer to that question is very simple. It's from God's word. But, but just consider this very day in this very city, people are answering the question of how is one saved? But then we say, yeah, but who, who does what in salvation? Who, who goes where in salvation? When, when does salvation happen? How does it happen? And then when it's all said and done, where do we go? This very moment in this city, those questions are being answered differently. And so the reason I want to have these lessons from the book of Jonah is because I believe the answer to those questions is always the same. We take God at his word when we find it and where we find it. We trace the scarlet thread of God's saving grace from the book of Jonah to the cross. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to, to, to look at this book and I want to take these lessons and I want us to gather a fuller picture of what Christ has done on the cross for those who will look upon him with faith. So let's, let's go to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. And we're going to skip Jonah 2. Um, I had Robert read that because his voice is better than mine and because it leaves us with one less chapter to read right now. <laughs> Jonah chapter 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before them, before me. 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, go, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. uh, tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us, perish for this ma- let us not perish for this man's life and not lay on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea seized from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed the great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then he prays in chapter 2. And then continuing in chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God." Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is, why, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this book. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see what it is you are doing here. Help us to see clearly the ways in which you point to Christ. Help us to see the gospel more fully and help us to understand our situation and your solution. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. By the way, you're welcome. You can mark that off your yearly Bible reading plan. There you go. Read an entire book of the Bible and it's only February. All right, so I want to look at three lessons from the book of Jonah. And again, uh, this is not going to be your typical like verse-by-verse exposition, so Hang in there with me. I I promise to help make it clear. The first lesson is this. We mustn't let fish hinder our understanding of salvation. We mustn't let fish hinder our understanding of salvation. I, I think one of our greatest downfalls as sinful humans is that we make big deals about little things and we skirt the issue on the great things. Yeah, there was a lot of mmms, so I think you understand, right? What we do is we conveniently want to miss what is uncomfortable and inconvenient and wrong. We want to get past those types of issues, and we want to just get to the good stuff, the things I'm doing right, the ways in which my life is, is good and holy. And so often we find ourselves going to Scripture and we find these little teeny tiny things and we make big massive deals of them and we end up missing the thing that God actually wants us to see. You do understand that this fish is given three total verses in four chapters. And yet for generations, men and women have been debating the fish. I remember sitting in church And I was in a small country church, so I did have flannel graph up until the age of like 27. Um, But we had little flannel graphs. And and I remember that the story of Jonah was always about Jonah and the well. This this well that comes and swallows up Jonah and we're walking away thinking, man, God is so big and powerful. And, And that's true. I don't want to take that away from this story. But the reality is, is as sinful beings, our tendency is to say, yeah, God, God is so good. Look how powerful he is. 
And yet we end up missing the things that make us uncomfortable and make us squirm right off the bat. I don't think this is an accident that, that this is what we do. You, you do understand that your sin nature in every instance will urge you to skirt the issue. Your sin nature will urge you, husband, to go to bed angry at your wife instead of dealing with the issue. Young, young person, your sin nature will urge you to just keep scrolling through Instagram instead of putting it down and trying to protect your eyes. Single person, your sin nature will urge you to look at non-single people and be discontent and angry. Whatever your thing is, your sin nature will cause you to make a big deal about the little things and miss the ways in which God is teaching you the major things. Well, why, why is this? Why, why exactly do we focus on the fish? Why, why is it that this is the way our sin nature works? Why do we look at a book like this and try to figure out whether or not a fish could really swallow a man? Why do we do that? Well, I think the answer is in verse 2. Look, look with me. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The reason we do that is because when we have a biblical view of salvation, whenever we come to the Bible to learn what it is God is doing, when we contend with the salvation of the Lord, we always have to contend with his wrath. The reason we do this is because we look at this and think, man, if God is angry at these people for their disobedience, I wonder if he would be angry at me. And so our solution is to skip past it, to not have to contend with whether we are the disobedient people in the story, to contend with whether or not we are really the object, object of God's righteous indignation, whether or not we are the disobedient ones here. And so there are those in this story that God is displeased with. They're the people of Nineveh. And as we read, we are just sitting here thinking, please don't be me. Please don't be me. But this is where I want to urge you not to avoid this issue. This is where I want to encourage you when you come to Scripture and see these difficult things and see the wrath of God and, and, the, and the things we don't really want to talk about, right? God is just a good guy. He, he's a good, loving God. That's just who he is. Well, well, the reason not to think like that is because there's a great lesson for us regarding how God saves people and whom he is saving the reality is that everybody in the world wants salvation to be universal. Just, just again, and maybe they're not talking about biblical salvation, maybe they're not talking about God saving anyone, but nobody wants to face judgment in the end, right? Even people who believe in evolution to the fullest extent just want us to die when it's all said and done. Nobody wants to go somewhere where you have to answer for anything in the end. And God does say that there is a universal aspect of salvation here. But, but instead of it being saving grace, the universal aspect of salvation is sin. 
that in this story in particular, Jonah is disobedient and ridden with sin, and the people of Nineveh who have rejected God are living in sin. Everybody is a sinner. But here's what we need to make sure that we don't miss. Brothers and sisters, if you are sharing the gospel with people, make sure you don't miss this part. Unbeliever, if you are here this morning and this is kind of like rubbing you wrong, I need you to hear me now. This is why we can't miss this part. Because God's wrath is actually a means of grace in our lives. When we come to the book of Jonah and see that there are those that God is displeased with and he is about to judge them rightly, that is a means of grace to us, the reader. It's a means of grace because it reminds us that we need to cry out in desperation to God. This happens two different times. The men on the boat cry out in desperation to God that he would not kill them because of Jonah. And then again, the people cry out in Nineveh that he would not kill them because of what Jonah has said. God's wrath should always remind us that we aren't safe. And that should cause us to cry out desperately. It should cause us to see who we are and what we need to do. Look, look at me again with, uh, in Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of God, and the people of Nineveh, they did become the people of God, believed God. They called for a fast and put sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Look with me at Joel, just a couple books back into the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Here the prophet Joel is talking about the day of the Lord when the Lord will come back and make everything right, where he will judge those who must be judged and save those who must be saved. And he continues saying in verse 12, Yet even now, though the day of the Lord is coming, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster." Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Here, the apostle Peter has just preached on the day of Pentecost, and many, 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 many thousands of believers have, or people in his hearing have come to Christ. And now he is saying once again, in a different place, in chapter 3, 19, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. God has always been, from the beginning of time, giving man an opportunity to cry out to him in repentance. One of his means of doing that work of saving grace is reminding us who we are and what we need. 
And he does that by reminding us that we are disobedient, that we are ridden with the disease of sin. And he sends men of God and women of God to tell people all around the world that there is a solution to your problem. Have you, man, I, have you ever noticed, and it's pretty much my generation, it's only millennials really, um, and I think actually that's because like you older folks, you don't put stuff out on social media. You got it, you have issues too, but you don't put it out like we put it out, okay? So stop judging. But have you ever noticed how people are just way too eager to share memes and social status updates about the negative aspects of their life? Like their, their like negative characteristics and flaws? Have you ever noticed that? I'm, I'm not actually going to give examples because <laughs> I've done all of them, I think. Um, but people are just way, way too desperate to kind of put this out to the world. Like, like the ways in which they are falling short as a spouse, the ways in which they are falling short as a parent, the ways, uh, as with, the ways in which they are falling short as children, um, or the ways in which children's parents are falling short, depending on your kid. Um, but we just put all of this stuff out. And, and like I, sometimes I really don't understand. It's like 88 piles of laundry, and you take a picture of it, and, and you put it up there, and you talk about spend more time with your kids than your laundry. Totally fine, but we got to wear clothes. <laughs> like, no one wants to smell you. Right? Being an adult is really difficult. But we do it in even worse ways than that. Maybe it's some sort of particular sin. Maybe it's a struggle with alcohol. Maybe it's a struggle with what you see. And we, and we put these things out. And the reason we do that is because we think that this is a means of confession to the world. We actually do it thinking it'll bring positive results into our life. And yet the thing we don't actually realize, but we do, is that we put those things out and they only make light and humor of the negative things in our life. They only make fun of the ways in which we fall short. These types of things fuel our inner sinful inertia. Right? Let's have a science class. Inertia is the tendency of an object to not move unless acted upon. Well, we put these things out and they let us just stay right here. We get to kind of still own them, but, but at least everyone knows about it. The reason Scripture is so necessary that we have to understand these difficult moments in Scripture, that the Lord is actually disobedient with our negative aspects, our negative characteristics of our life, is because Scripture doesn't allow us to remain inert. What Scripture does is when we come to it, we don't just post it and throw it around. Scripture does this. It's that force that causes something that desires to remain still to move just a bit. The reason we have to come to the Bible is because the Bible doesn't let us remain in what we once were. The Bible at every turn challenges our sinful na nature. The Bible at every turn will call those sinful parts of your life to the four, and you will either have to contend with them or continue to put them away. 
the Bible makes us reckon with who we are. Are we evil Nineveh or are we disobedient Jonah? And I think what Jonah does for us is it shows us that we, that what we do and how we act isn't inconsequential. God sees what we do. He knows the motivations of our heart. That is why Adam and Eve fled in the garden to try to hide from God in the midst of their sin. And that's why Jonah tries to get on a boat and flee to Tarshish. Because when our sin comes up before God, it is really uncomfortable. But it is so necessary. And so I think we kind of find ourselves naturally at lesson number two. Lesson two is this. Where there is salvation, there is the marriage of God's judgment and mercy. So one of the most well-intentioned movements of the the church as a whole, um, not, not ours, But one of the most well-intended and I think greatest downfalls of the the church, especially the modern church, is overemphasizing grace and mercy. Now, let me tell you why it's well-intended. It's well-intended because the idea is that we, we want to eliminate as many barriers as we can to an unbeliever coming into a worship service. And, and I totally get the thought process there. We, we don't want to be abrasive. We want to be warm and welcoming. And so we, we emphasize God's grace, His love, His mercy, the, the warm and fuzzy aspects of, of God. Well, I think that that is a huge downfall. And the reason is this. I think when we do that, we lose the pressure that the Bible applies on us. I think that we are supposed to feel the gravity of our sin. Would, would you agree? I, when, when we read the, the, the book of Jonah, we are supposed to see the gravity in the very beginning verses of Jonah's disobedience. The, the storm is not just a storm. It's not just a hitch in his travel plans. This is God Almighty showing forth a picture of his wrath, of his justice upon those who would disobey him. When when we overemphasize grace and mercy, we lose the pressure that the Bible puts on us to realize that there are those whom God is displeased with. Here's the thing. (laughs) I I have been in many churches, just growing up where I grew up in Appalachia, um, I I have been in many churches where it was just um, hellfire and brimstone, like a lot of beating on the pulpit and overemphasizing the opposite of mercy and grace, emphasizing the sinfulness of man. Right? You're, you're so bad, and then you just like punch the pulpit a bunch of times and talk about how horrible people are. And the weirdest part about it all is like you're saying all of that stuff, and everyone in the crowd is just saying, hey, man, preacher. Like, no, he's telling you bad things. Like, what are you talking about, amen? And in Appalachia, people don't say amen, they say amen. Challenge me. Promise you it's true. But the middle ground is where we need to be. 
Because there is not only grace and mercy here, but there's not only the wrath and justice of God here. There, there is a middle ground for us to see in which God actually works out his salvation. The reason we are supposed to see the wrath of God in this book in particular is not so we will flee and fear God. It's so that we will fear him and run to him. If you have either of those things, grace and mercy, or wrath and justice, you're missing the point that what God is doing is saying, you're sinful and disobedient, come to me and I will bring you in. Fear me and I will protect you. I can create the storm, but I can calm the storm. This is what we're supposed to see. And, and Jonah knows this so well that he, he, he tries to flee from God because he knows without a doubt if he goes into Nineveh and tells them, hey, um, just so you know, you've been really disobedient. God is going to destroy you in 40 days, so re <clears throat> repent or whatever you need to do, and we'll call it a day here. Because Nineveh is the enemy of the, the Jews. Nineveh has been an oppressive force for quite some time to the Jewish people. And Jonah is just thinking, if these people come to God, then what happens to us? This is the whole issue Israel has had the entire Old Testament. Hey, you're to be a, a essentially you're to be a light on a hill to all the nations that they might see the true God of Israel and that they might come and be a part of Israel. And Israel's like, nah, like how about we just be Israel? Like just, just us. How, how about it be just us? And that's the struggle that Jonah is facing. He knows that if he goes to Nineveh and cries out, then God will save even someone he considers to be an enemy. God will save even those that he think are just too far gone for grace. And so he flees. Look what he says in, in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, by the way, he's still praying. Isn't that funny? <laughs> and he prayed, like, I got something to tell you, God. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Unbeliever, if your sin is being called up before you in this moment, know that it is not so I can oppress you. It, it's not so Crosspoint Church can look at you and just think, man, you're just such a filthy sinner. How, how dare you? How dare you come here? If your sin is coming before you, it's because we want you to know that God is gracious, that he is slow to anger, that he is merciful, that he is abounding in steadfast love, and that if you will give that sin to him, he will bring you in. He will save your life. He will relent from the disaster that is yours currently.
think Jonah challenges us to understand that salvation requires not only that God be merciful, kind, loving, but that he exercise judgment as well. And so look at, look at uh, 1 John chapter 2. So you might be saying, okay, you're saying a lot of things, but I still don't understand. What do you want me to do? <laughs> or, or you may be thinking, you know, I'm a believer. I've been living in sin, and I don't know what to do. What, what is the answer? Well, I think John gives us a very simple answer in 1 John chapter 2 in verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The answer is, is really rather simple. If you want to receive the mercy of God, you must understand that it will come through the judgment of God. I hope you, you see that any time mercy is extended to you or to me or to any unbeliever that would be saved this very day, that mercy is only on the basis of God's judgment of his own son. That his son is facing the judgment that was ours. And because God looks upon that, because he judged his son to be righteous, he gives us what he saw in his son and puts our disobedience on him. And so in every instance where God has been gracious, it's because he has rightly judged Jesus. Where there is salvation, there is the marriage of God's judgment and mercy. I think the reason this is so important for us on a practical level is because we tend to go about our days putting people in categories. Like, yeah, they're, they're, they, can, they can believe. Like, look at them. Look, look how beautiful their clothes are. They're, they're definitely the type of person that would believe the gospel today. Oh, man, look at him. He's, he is a drug dealer. There's no way. He deals drugs. He, he can't believe the gospel. Man, my father, my father is just such a hard man. There's no way. He's too blind. The reason this is so important for us practically is because we are so prone to putting people in categories. We look at the manner of people's lives and we believe them to be unchangeable. Maybe you're in this room and you're thinking, I'm the unchangeable one. I get what you're saying. I, I, I can even contend that God is gracious and He is just, whatever. But you don't know me. You, you don't know what I've done. If, if I were to come to faith, people would laugh me out of my town. But the lesson for us all is this. No one can flee the pursuit of God. If he is knocking at the door, he will come in. I think this is not a, a message about evangelism, but I think just practically speaking... I think we should share the gospel with every person we come in contact with. 
Now, may I confess to you that I don't do that. But based on what we see so far, we should share the gospel with every person we come in contact with. The best of the best and the worst of the worst. Because only God is sovereign in salvation. And so we come to our final lesson. God uses miraculous means in bringing about the salvation of His children. You know, one of my favorite things I do as a pastor here is we, uh, anytime new members come in, we divvy them up and we interview those people and get to know them, and then we get to share their testimonies with the other elders and their wives. It's my favorite part. I hate actually typing those up. Um, I'm so sorry, Robert. Uh, Don't like to type them. However, love to sit and hear them. Because (laughs) every single testimony that I hear is a testimony of a miracle. Now you, you know amazing grace. And the reason we as believers, I think, find so much joy in amazing grace is not because we can sing very good. I've sat around this sanctuary all kinds of places, and there are many of you who have beautiful voices. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm the worst singer in the room. <laughs> But what we, what we get to those words, lost and now found, right? Blind, but now I see. The reason we resonate with those is because those are miraculous things. <laughs> I was once a, a dead man, and now I'm alive. Every testimony whether you have a moment of conversion that you can point to or whether you just feel you've been saved your whole life and you know it's God's grace and giving you a good family, a good church family, it's a miracle. But there's a caution in Jonah for for us here, I think. And I think it's that we must be careful to not require more of God than what he has done. We're going to look at a chapter here in Matthew, but, but you, you do understand what I'm saying, right? The greatest miracle has been extended to us, and so often we find ourselves kind of you know, asking God, like, how about just a little more? Right? I'm sick of this kind of like struggling with the whole faith thing. How about just a little more? Well, brother or sister, maybe struggling in faith is, is a means of sanctification for you. Maybe that's your means for the rest of your life. I think what Jonah is doing is he's cautioning, uh, cautioning us to not want more from God than what He has actually already done for us. Now, that's not saying we shouldn't pray boldly, but let's look at what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse, um, verses 38 through uh, 41. So Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and their scribes here, um, and he has been for several chapters now in Matthew kind of going back and forth with them, essentially trying to uh, get them to confess that they don't know what they're talking about, that he really is the Christ from God, and they will not concede. And so he says this, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. (laughs) We need to be careful, pointing back to lesson one, that we don't have a misguided desire for the lesser. We need to be careful that we're missing the most miraculous thing that has happened in the life of a believer only to desire more miraculous. I think the question that we do not need to ask from this text is whether God can legitimately have a fish swallow a man. If you walk away today trying to figure out whether God can have a fish swallow a man, well, the answer is yes. But instead of trying to answer that question, which is yes, um, what purpose does it serve? (laughs) I just remember, you remember that guy that told us that Hebrews was written by Paul at the Georgia Baptist Convention? He was so sure, and he just kept telling us. So the fish swallowed the man. Um, You have to get over it. I don't know. Um, What purpose does it serve, though? Right? Don't go away thinking about that. What purpose does it actually serve? Why does a fish need to swallow a man? Why put something that can be so greatly contested or debated in a book? Why not make it something simple that we're all on the same page? Like, yeah, he fell overboard and then they went over to the side and picked him up and saved his life. He was in the ocean for three minutes and then he was on board for three minutes, right? I don't know, it works, right? Three and three. It could have been something so much more simple than a fish swallowing a man. But he doesn't do that. The reason he gives us the fish is because he wants us in the book of Jonah to be pointed to an even greater work that he does through Jesus that can be received only by faith. This book is a test of our faith. It is only by faith that we can believe God saved anyone, whether from the belly of a fish or from the pits of hell. We have to humble ourselves to get to that point. Listen, you know, I know there's a bunch of smart people in here. I know we've got doctors, we've got scientists, we've got lawyers. We've got a whole host of people that can fix things in my house that I can't even pronounce. There are people in here with great, great skill. But if you want to make your way to the cross from a book like this, you must put on humility. You must take God at His word when you find it and where you find it. And you must not skirt the issue and get to the better, get to the greater, but contend with where you are in the moment. The greatest hope that we can draw from this book is found in Jonah chapter 2 verse 9.
Chapter 2, verse 9, from the belly of the fish, Jonah says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Our hope is that God, in all of His sovereignty, in all of His majesty, in all of His power and might over fish and sea, God is sovereignly evangelistic. God, from before time, has always intended to save His people. Even before we as His people knew we would fall, even before we as His people would struggle with sin, God has in His sovereignty been an evangelist. That was true then, and it's true today. God's desire through His Son is to, through us, roam about the earth sharing the good news of the gospel so that He can rip men from the belly of fish. So I think God is using something that seems so far-fetched to teach us a great truth and to challenge our faith. That he brings forth life where it seems that death is the only logical reality. The reminder to us, especially those of us who believe, is this. That there is coming a day when the places that will be filled with the most life, the places that will be teeming with life, will be graves and tombs and catacombs and ditches and from the ingathering of ashes scattered from about the earth. Because God delivered a man from the belly of a fish and his son from out of the earth. And so I want to leave you with this question. As soon as I started preparing for this, this came in my head. And I was just reminded of Jesus' interaction with these sinners as these friends brought their paralytic friend to him to be healed. And they have this long altercation at the end after Jesus has just healed this man. He has has forgiven him of his sins and he has healed his crippled body. And so I want to change the question for us. And the question is this. Which is easier, to say to a fish, swallow this man, or to say to a great city, or to you, your sins are forgiven? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that has been shown to us through Christ alone. Father, I pray that you would use my feeble attempt at preaching to to save the lives of unbelievers, that you would use everything we do today to bring hard, dead hearts into beating life. Father, our desire is to to not be seen as a church who has the greatest preaching, but rather a, a church who preaches faithfully. God, I pray that you would give us a longing and an, an urge to see souls saved for you, that your son might be exalted and lifted up, that we might proclaim that Christ alone is our only way. Lord, would you be pleased and would you do that work? We praise you that in your sovereignty you have sought to be just, and in your justice you have extended grace and mercy to those who will look upon the cross of Christ. Lord, would you do that this morning? We thank you, and it's in your son's name we pray.